No. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, I've never. Actually, I'm an American, so. <laughs> no, but I, I, I should have put it together. Uh, let's start. God, sorry, my. What happens when? It's name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself this, this morning in the Mass. The great forgiveness that you offer us in our sins. You call sinners um, to yourself. Um, it's a great encouragement for us not to let our sins uh, cause a despair, or, um, push us away from you. Um, we, we, we struggle with your help to put our sins away, to become one with you in everything we do. Help us to do that. Um, your words this morning were about the destruction of Jerusalem. You're chasing the money changers out. You stood on the hill overlooking Jerusalem, weeping, knowing what would happen to it. Um, um, Father asked us to um, look inside of ourselves, to um, be mindful of um, the changes that we should all, each of us, be working on. Strengthen us in our efforts to do that. Um, in all things, help us to bring you in all that we do um, with each other. Um, whatever cross that involves, strengthen us to bear it. Uh, for um, um, a great Thanksgiving for Bob's recovery, the, um, the fact that the surgery went so well, be with him in his um, recovery, um, steady him, help him to heal, and we offer our thanksgiving for Devlin? Declan. 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 Um, do all you can um, to help him be strengthened in his Irish heritage. The Irish tend to be tough-minded. Um, give him a good mind and a good heart. Um, let a joy um, multiply. Um, between him and, and all of those in his family. Um, I ask for a special blessing on Suzanne. Um, keep her safe in her travels this day. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, gosh. Okay. Um, if, if you have the poem, Herbert's Death, pull it out. Otherwise, don't, don't even want In fact, just leave it. I'm going to read it. We, we've read it before. I'm, I'm reading it this morning because, because of the questions that I'm asking about um, Anthony and Cleopatra. Um, I'll, that'll become clear as, as we go along. But, um, but you remember last week, I, one of the questions I asked was, what was God doing before Christ came? Because Anthony and Cleopatra take place just before his coming. And strange things are happening. Um, one of them is the apophatic, the, this way of knowing by absence. It, it sounds strange to our ears. It's one of the great mystical traditions of our church. There's two major mystical traditions. The way of affirmation of images, that's Dante. We know through the things that are made, St. Paul would say. We know the invisible things through the things that are made, that the, the way of approach to God is through his creation. 
And the other way is the way of negation. Um, the way of getting to God is by taking away those things we know because we know there's very little we can say about God. Um, Christ revealed him actually in lots of ways, but the way of negation is the dark night of the soul to enter into a darkness. Um, I'm gonna speak to that in a minute um, uh, because we've been talking about tragedy um, and it'll, it'll make more sense I think when we make it concrete, but um, anyway, death, Death is everywhere around Anthony and Cleopatra. We don't see it immediately. Very little is said a, about it, but it almost has a presence. It, it's so much a part of everything that goes on. So I thought I would read this poem because if you remember it, you remember that um, um, Herbert, who was an Anglican priest, was celebrating death. He was reminding us that death is something we shouldn't be afraid of. Um, that it's a positive thing, even though we tend to make it very negative. So, George Herbert's death, okay? Don't have to look, you don't have to look for the piece, just if you can hear it. Death. Death thou once, once an uncouth, hideous thing, nothing but bones, the sad effect of sadder groans. Thy mouth was open, but thou couldst not sing, for we considered thee as at some six or ten years hence, after the loss of life and sense, flesh being turned to dust and bones to sticks, we looked on this side of thee, shooting short, where we did find the shells of fledged souls left behind, dry dust, which sheds no tears, but may extort. But since our Savior's death did put some blood into thy face, thou art grown fair and full of grace, much in request, much sought for as a good. For we do now behold thee gay and glad as a doomsday, when souls shall wear their new array, and all thy bones with beauty shall be clad. Therefore we can go die asleep, and trust half that we have unto an honest, faithful grave, making our pillows either down or dust. It's a wonderful celebration of death. Um, Okay, I'm, last week, if I remember, I'm losing it more and more, um, was a setup week. What I did was just read from the opening lines, right, about the apophatic, what was, what was not known, what wasn't seen. I did that. Wow. The beginning? Yes. 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 Yeah. Yes. Good. We've done that. I say that because I'm, <laughs> I'm never sure anymore about anything. <laughs> Um, I want to go back to that, but before, before we do, I want to offer a couple of thoughts on the tragic paradigm and um, ask you to keep that in mind as we read. So there's a couple of thoughts I want to leave you with before I go to last week and what we did. Um, T.S. Eliot um, was one of the, I believe, is the greatest lyric poet of the 20th century. You know we've done a number of things. We did the four quartets, even though Suzanne told me never to do that. We risked it. I know it was not an easy poem. I know it was a really difficult poem. I'm, I'm going to be reading from it again because I'm, 
the, the depth of wisdom is so great that it, it bears going back to again and again. Eliot was one of the greatest critics of the 20th century, too. He had just a, an extraordinary mind. His focus was always literature. It wasn't science. Um, he wrote a book on culture, um, a great concern of his. In one of his um, essays on Shakespeare, he says this about the plays at the end of Shakespeare's life. Um, the characters in Cymbeline, The Winter's Tale, we've done The Winter's Tale, The Tempest we haven't done in Pericles. I may come back before we leave to do Pericles. I mean, we're, I'm not going to, we're going to do Scarlet Letter and Til Eliot's um, Murder of the Cathedral and then finish with Dostoevsky. That's, that's it for us. I may do Pericles. I don't think it's as, it's as great a play as Winter's Tale, but there's not a question in my mind that it's one of the most sacramental and probably the most mystical play. It's about a man um, who, who, who puts his life at risk when he goes to woo for a woman, and the condition of the wooing is that he has to solve this, this uh, puzzle that the king presents to him before the king will turn over his daughter. And he realizes right away that the, the puzzle is a trick. Anybody who doesn't get it will be sent packing or be beheaded, and anybody who does get it will be beheaded. Because what's at the center of the miracle is the incest between the father and daughter. Pericles manages to escape and flees, but when he flees, he puts his own kingdom at risk because the king will want to take avenge on him because the king doesn't want the news getting out that he's had this incestuous affair with this woman, beautiful woman, but it's um, the relationship between her and her father is incestuous. The whole play is about his exile, his wandering. And it's really interesting because he just, he visits maybe a half a dozen regimes, and each one of those regimes is a paradigm of a regime. So it's like going back to Aristotle's politics or Plato's Republic, where we actually learn about regimes the way we've talked about in this course. He learns about them, and um, um, what happens over the course of his um, journey is that on board ship, he thinks his wife is dead. She dies in a storm. And um, if I remember correctly, it's been a long time, I think they put her to sea in a casket. She washes up on shore and gives birth to her daughter, Marina, and years and years later, it's like um, or, uh, Leontes with pa um, Paulina, remember in Winter's Tale, when he had um, um, God, Camilo had to flee with, um, with the other king, Boy, Leontes was the king and his friend, Polixenes, I think. And Camilla had to flee, and um, Leontes makes um, Antigonus's wife, or Paulina, um, Paulina's husband, Antigonus, take Hermione's baby. Wow, let me go back. You all remember yeah, Winter's Tale. Yes. Mm -hmm. Leontes accuses his wife of Hermione of, of infidelity with Polixenes. Um, Polixenes and Camilo, the servant, flee. Um, he tells Camille, or Antigonus, who is Paulina's husband, to take the babe and leave it, abandon it somewhere so it will die. He ends up taking it to uh, Bohemia, which is where Polixenes is, and she grows up. Sixteen, I don't want to go through it, you, 16 years later, something happens to bring her back. 
and there's this extraordinarily tearful reunion between a, a father and daughter, and even more importantly, in some way, between the husband and wife. Because for all that period, Leontes thought his wife had, had died. So it's a resurrection. I mean, I, I really believe, I believe it's the most perfect expression of paradise, the resurrection, and the surprise of what one will encounter in that condition of, of forgiveness that we're meant to have. I think it's even greater than what Dante does in the Paradiso. But Leontes is reunited with his daughter. What was lost was found. And Shakespeare returns to that theme in, in Pericles. Pericles goes on these adventures. He thinks his wife is dead, <coughs> his daughter's dead. But 16, 20 years later, they're reunited. And what happens in this play that happens nowhere else in literature that I'm aware of, not in any Shakespeare play, is in that moment when Pericles sees his daughter Marina, he hears the music of the spheres. And if you remember all of this in Dante, you remember that's the heavenly music that we can't hear in our senses, we can only intellect it. And, and I think only the holy. When anybody enters paradise, they're going to hear that music. How, how can it be anything but that? We got hints of that in Dante, when Dante and Beatrice are reunited and, and they go into the heavenly spheres, that's just an order and a harmony and a beauty, you know, from then until the point when he sees God. So when the, the soul leaves this world, its body, and moves into heaven, it, it participates in this cosmic harmony, the harmony of the universe. And you can imagine, it's overwhelming this, this, to hear that music, the depth of it, because you're going into the depth of the harmony of God, the poetry or beauty of God. When Pericles sees his daughter, he rests, and in that moment he hears the music of the spheres. He rests and it's like an infinite peace overcomes him. It's mystical, definitely mystical. It's the only experience of the music of the spheres that I'm aware of in literature. So it's, it's a great play. What Eliot's recognizing is that in all of Shakespeare's later plays, he's going to a depth that he never, um, never realized earlier in a career, even though all of his careers point in that direction, okay? So here's Eliot's line on, on um, on Shakespeare and what he's doing in his latter plays. The characters in Cymbeline, The Winter's Tale, The Tempest, and Pericles, and I'm going to even say Lear, the tragedies, Lear, Antony, and Cleopatra, particularly those two tragedies, are the work of a writer who has finally seen through the dramatic action of men into a spiritual action which transcends it. Dramatic action in the ordinary sense is inadequate for making these emotions perceptible Shakespeare tends, therefore, to simplify his characters, to make them vehicles for conveying something of which they are unaware. In poetic drama, we are lifted to another plane of reality. A hidden and mysterious pattern of reality appears as from a palimpsest. Something is exhibited of which we have only rare glimpses in our daily life. These works are the work of a writer who has finally seen through the dramatic action of men into a spiritual action which transcends it. Okay? So in these works, and I think here, beginning because this is where we're going, um, Shakespeare, um, he doesn't bypass the concrete temporal order, our order, the earthly order. He doesn't bypass. He sees um, 
through what's concretely happening. That that's really important. He's not circumventing. He's not going around it. His mind is not jumping to something else. It's not like, it's not like ideologues. Because an ideologue is in a, in a system in his head. He, he circumvents. He gets around the concrete. The incarnated order. Shakespeare sees in the incarnated, the fleshly, concrete, physical order, through it to something beyond. It was always there in Christ, because Christ took on our concrete, physical body, but in him was present something divine. So he was the paradigm the, the, of that experience, okay? So what Eliot's saying, I mean, not in that many words, but um, that a whole Christian dimension is made present through what these characters do, okay, in these plays. So just hold on to that when we, when we get to the end and the, the really important questions. So just for a moment, I want everybody to recall the tragic paradigm, because you remember that the tragic paradigm uh, is the opposite of the comic. In comedy, the action passes from misfortune to good fortune, bad fortune to good. Okay, something bad's going to happen, it turns good. Antonio's going to lose his life at, in Merchant, right? He's going to go to jail, Shiloh's going to have his bond, Antonio's going to die. Um, tragedy reverses that. Tragedy begins with good fortune and, and ends in bad. So the trajectory is from good to bad. Okay, now most people, when they think about tragedy, think about it as something bad. And I've said again and again, if you look at the completed action, it actually supports Boethius' thesis, that there is no fortune that's bad. Shakespeare knew that. He knew Boethius. He knew the whole philosophic tradition. He doesn't avoid the bad. He, in every tragedy, something bad happens. But it's overcome, always. So what happens in the action of a tragedy drops us off at a point where a new order can come into being. The, the evil has been answered. It's a moment of restoration or, or the preparation for a refounding. Okay? Evil has been answered. Think about Thello. Iago's gone. His influence has been done. People are dying. The conditions have been laid for something good. People are aware of something they weren't before. Far more aware. Othello is far more aware. He's the tragic hero. So tragedy, to just say tragedy is about something bad is just a misconceived tragedy. It's not what tragedy is doing. I've been making the point again and again. Every tragedy ends with something good. A balance is recovered. The hero grows in self-knowledge. He's not the man he was before. The, let me give the perfect paradigm for this in a pre-Christian world. If any of you have read Oedipus Rex, one of the first great tragedies in the Western tradition. You know that Oedipus is made king because he's the one who solves the riddle. A plague comes to Thebes and nobody can answer it. And Oedipus is the one who pushes harder than anybody because he prides himself on his intellect. He's the one who solved the problem in the first place. So he's a man of great intellect who keeps pursuing the problem and discovers he's the cause of the plague. He killed his father without knowing it was father and he's been sleeping with his mother. Freud took that and made it a determined quality of our sexual nature, sadly. Um, um, <laughs> God, if Freud had read on, what most people don't know is that Oedipus dies happy. Okay? Oedipus King is about this tragic 
action involving Oedipus, he learns to see. When he discovers that he's the one who's caused all of this, he blinds himself. He gouges out his eyes. Oedipus Rex ends with Oedipus staring at an audience with caverns with blood dripping out of him. He's gouged his eyes out. Most people look at that as a grotesque horror. I think any person who has any sense in his head will look at Oedipus and say, he's an extraordinarily beautiful creature. He can see far more than anybody else, far more. He's learned to see something that nobody else has, and he's got a depth of self-knowledge nobody in that play approaches. Later in his life, when Sophocles took up this play again, he ended his career writing Oedipus at Colonus. And at Oedipus at Colonus, Oedipus is assumed by the gods. He's blessed. What he's showing is that a wisdom comes to us through suffering. Of greater self-knowledge, the people who pride themselves on being smart and above suffering are probably the most arrogant people in the world. <clears throat> what all these tragic he poets are showing us is that a great wisdom comes through suffering. And if the connection isn't clear, take a look at the cross. There is no more grotesque, no more grotesque image in all of history there can ever be. God went to a cross. He went to a cross. It was the most grotesque, and he was crucified horribly, died from asphyxia and suffering for hours and then died. And yet we look at it as the most beautiful event in history because it was the means of our salvation. At the center of our faith is this great paradox between suffering and grace. Okay? So the tragic paradigm touches on this paradox, always. It takes us through a tragic action. Remember, um, the tragic hero. I'm, I'm, right now I'm just going to go through it again. I've done this a number of times right now. The tragic hero is always a noble-souled individual. Always. In moderns, it's, it's God, it's just, it's balderized. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's just ruined in the modern. In the tragic paradigm, the tragic hero is always a noble figure. Oedipus, Lear, Macbeth, Hamlet. You go on and on, Anthony and Cleopatra. Something happens involving a weakness in the classical world um, that has um, awful consequences. Um, Oedipus searches out the cause of the plague and thieves and discovers that he's the cause, and he didn't even know it, but the sin was in him. It, it speaks directly to Christianity. Um, the tendency of the modern mind is to look outward and criticize, criticize people, fix other people. The whole po focus of Christianity is we begin with ourselves, like Plato, mind your own business. We're supposed to change ourselves. We're, we're supposed to grow in self-knowledge. Um, what happens in the tragic hero is that he does something that sets him outside the conventions of men, the world as people know it. You know that with Achilles. Those of you who have been doing this from the beginning, you know it from Odysseus. But take Achilles. He, um, he opposes his king, steps outside that order, and all the Greeks begin to die. That's a paradigm. Hamlet does it. Othello does it. Othello steps outside. Iago guides him outside of that world. When the tragic hero steps outside of that world, he, he faces a darkness nobody else in the, in the play faces. Achilles, Lear, you name it, Hamlet. Everybody else, in, in a sense, seeks protection in that conventional world, right? 
Because it's much easier to live, it's much e we did this with Faulkner, it's much easier to act respectable and hide behind it. That's why respectability is so enabling. People hide behind it. They don't need to deal with anything. They can point their finger at other people, they can take a high moral <coughs> ground, but they don't descend into that darkness. Tragic hero always does. So when he's there, he has to face things, experience things, the pain of things that other people don't. When we do Scarlet Letter, this is coming up next, if any of you have begun it, you know, you know that Dimsdale is and Hester, Dimsdale and Hester lie outside of that Puritan community. And Dimsdale, in some ways, more than Hester, because he's bearing that burden secretly. Nobody knows he is, so it festers in him. So when men step out, or women, but largely men, when men step out of that world into this darkness, they see things, suffer things that others don't. And in all tragic actions, remember the tragic hero comes to a moment of recognition, the anagnorisis. The anagnorisis. There's a growth in self-knowledge. He sees spiritual truths largely about himself, but insofar as he sees that, it opens his eyes on other people. And remember how this lines up with Socrates and Plato. Remember Plato said, you don't come out of the cave until you start questioning. And there are these two moments, the, what Plato called the um, aporia and elenctus. Aporia, it's the moment of puzzlement and confusion where you think you know everything and you've got all the answer, then suddenly something happens. You know, it, it can be your brother-in-law ran off with somebody or one of your children is on drugs or whatever it is. Um, and it always makes us aware of those sins in ourselves that we didn't want to see. So the whole Platonic critique turns in that moment in the cave when somebody begins to question and they realize they don't have all the answers. That's the first condition for growth, self-knowledge. And, and whatever love becomes possible with that new awareness of self. Because so long as the person thinks he's got all the answers, he's stuck. So the tragic paradigm is, is it always involves these tests and trials, these spiritual, what's called an agon. The agon, the tension, the conflict, and you know, Agon is the source of our word agony, this battle. At the center of these, of the tragic paradigm is this agon, this battle, inside ourselves. Um, and what's going on inside ourselves is usually mirrored in what goes on outside. There are battles um, because a man is one with his world. But the result of this is this, is this restoration that all of the injustices, the disorders are answered, they're put to rest, and man is returned to his natural state. A balance is recovered. The cost of it is great. People will die. Evil, the, the effects of evil are real. Man can't escape them. Um, but it always moves us towards a new order, the recovery of something lost, okay? Let me stop for a second. I want, I just, these are general things we've talked about, but. They're underlying principles, so they've been important all along. Any, any questions before we look at the plate? Jay, yeah. Um, and I come into this with the limited knowledge having not been in place, but it struck me um, that Shakespeare uses, and you, what you just described for Pericles, 
is a plot device the assumption that somebody is dead who is not dead? And how often does he do that? And is that something he does a lot? Because I can think of three off the top of my head. Go ahead. What? But, well, Anthony kills himself because he oh, thinks... Oh, good for you. He thinks Cleopatra oh, is good dead. For you. Romeo kills himself because he thinks good, Juliet yeah. is dead. And you just described Pericles as he thinks his wife Good is you. dead and been washed ashore. I mean, that's clearly a driving plot device in yeah. what he writes. Yeah, except, in, boy, good for you. You're a Shakespeare scholar. You should be up for doing this. <laughs> um, no, really, good for you. Good for you. E yes, except the, the trouble with most modern teachers is when they talk about plot devices, what they're doing is technically rationalizing something. It's a, te it's a technical matter. And it, it's, so it's reductive, it gets reduced to that. It's clear that it's not a technical matter, just a technical matter, or a plot device. It's, it's, God, it's so hard to, it's, it's something that's a part of growing in our experiences because we learned that what we thought was true turned out not to be true. And insofar it has, as that it has to do with death, it arouses the deepest kinds of feelings um, because we think we lose everything, or we think we've lost somebody, particularly with lovers, we think we've lost our love. So it's not a, a plot device, it's an actual, it's a device that, that makes possible rendering something real. Because one of the most real things for all of us is death and the loss of it, particularly in a loved one. If you've lost your husband or wife or your child, you know, or your parents, um, that loss is deep. And the interesting thing, I mean, you're so, you're so good, you're so right on in what you've described, is as, as he matures, the implications of that moment are far greater, so that it's not just the loss of a loved one, say with Romeo. It's, God, this is good. See, I'm giving away a question here. I didn't want to. Um, Do I get thrown out? <laughs> <laughs> here, I'm going to put this in the form of a question. Um, you are in trouble with me right now. <laughs> well, I, 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 Wait, let me, let me sorry, just okay, um, <clears throat> let me Let me put this in the form of a question because I'm going to come to it directly. Last week, when I mentioned the apophatic, I described what, what we can look at as withdrawals again and again and again and again. I'm going to get to them in a second. So, so one of the questions is, is what's happening a withdrawal? Or is it death invisible that's a means to another dimension? That all that's happening is actually an apophatic way of making us aware that there's something else there. So it's just like the apophatic in the beginning when Cleopatra, I'm going to go back there in a minute, when Cleopatra says, Tell me how much. If you didn't, and you remember I asked the question last week. What was just said to make her, to make clear the meaning of those words? We talked about that. Um, but anyway, there are all these absences, these gaps, these privations, and these withdrawals. Um, is that all they are, or are they related to death, the loss of things that, that actually prepare for something else that's not seen? And this is so important because it relates so much to our faith. If a modern non-believer read that stuff, they'd make nothing of it. 
If you're an intellectual coming out of universities today, you'll read that and see nothing. So it's either nothing or, I mean, exactly as you put it, you know, that, that um, is it, is it an opening on something else? I'm, I, w I don't want to. I don't want to answer that right now. But I, you, the way you phrase that is, you, I mean, you did it wonderfully. Sorry, Tom. No, I, w I was just thinking when you get into the experience of the characters, that you, they give you access to something that you don't often have, uh, and so I'm I'm amazed that as he develops these characters. That, uh, he takes you into the human dilemma, or the the powerlessness or the woundedness of human beings. That it's so great mm -hmm. that uh, you want to shy away from it almost. It's like there's something stirred because it resonates with you, mm -hmm. and you don't know what it is. And it takes a long time to find words for that. Yeah, even if you can. It, yes, yes. And I, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm just amazed at the characters he develops and then they take your breath away and, and I think I am so. too. Mm -hmm. I mean often I'd say to Suzanne I, I get up at least several times a week when I'm thinking about thinking I'm just amazed in awe. I mean I say that again when I look at this stuff I just I, it's just so amazing to me what he did. It's so incarnational though. Yeah that's, that's yes absolutely yeah. absolutely. I like the idea you don't go around but that's, that, that's one way of uh, not growing spiritually. I think the modern, the modern Protestant does, and I think the modern intellectual does, because they're in, their, they're in ideas in their heads. They don't, they don't deal with the concrete world. Remember that passage that I gave you from Tate when he described St. Catherine taking the beheaded man, you know, his, when he was beheaded? I'll bring it again. I read that to you. I'll read it again. She receives the, the, the head of the beheaded guy who was executed, and she won't, she won't get fussy, you know. Um, she won't wipe it off. She absolutely embraces the blood and describes the moment as a participation in the Eucharist in one moment. That it's not in her head. She doesn't circumvent the moment. She doesn't get around it because it's messy. She absolutely... She's one with it. So in that moment, she, she participates in the Eucharist fully. I'll, I'll bring it again next time we meet and I'll read it. Because it is absolutely incarnational. It's not in the head. It's not an abstraction. It's not an idea. Here, let me, let me quickly, very, very quickly. The apophatic remembers is a knowledge by negation, by what's not there. <coughs> it's the opposite of the way of affirmation. I'll, I'll read the beginning in a minute just to remind you. The great themes of Anthony and Cleopatra um, um, have to do with the relationship between the two cultures, the two cities, the two ways. East And, and it's really important to see them as east, east and West, Rome and Egypt. Rome is masculine. Um, yeah. Egypt is feminine. Um, Caesar and Cleopatra are both autocratic, both autocratic, except the direction of their sort of absolute powers are different. Caesar's autocratic in the sense that he believes in a justice that all men can uh, participate in. So everything he does is to bring a justice to the world. At the end of the play, 
um, in, in his battles with Anthony, he will say, a universal justice is near. The one thing that drives Caesar is justice and peace. That's his end. So even though he's autocratic, it's really for the sake of, of a political ideal. Um, um, Cleopatra is autocratic and selfish, absolutely self-centered. Everything she does is for herself. Um, she, she whips her servants when they don't tell her when she, when, what she wants to hear. Um, what defines Rome um, is this presumption on Caesar's part that if he's wise enough and prudent enough with the use of men and the, and the strength that men have, he can overcome fortune and he can bring about this peace. Cleopatra says of him, she said, Caesar is fortune's slave. Um, so Rome is given to contracts and strategies. It's very masculine. The, the, it shows the male mind tending to live in structures in its head. I think it's fairly accurate that men tend to live in structures in their heads. Women are far more emotional. Um, so what we see going on in Rome are contracts constantly, schemes, treaties, and forever they're broken. They, 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 they enter into things thinking that in order to achieve justice they have to do X. Or, or to wait, the way to deal with this problem is th to do this. This is the solution. Okay, there's the male mind. And what we see is, um, is that however much they believe that can be done, it can't. Because every treaty they make gets broken. And by the way, I hope you see the connection pointing to Merchant of Venice. We're already looking forward to the Merchant of Venice regime on, based on the law. Um, so, in, in connection with this vision that Rome has of bringing a universal peace to the world, and it actually does, relative peace, because after this play ends, um, um, Caesar is pronounced Augustus Caesar, his <coughs> name and empire, emperor, and Rome goes through um, a couple of centuries of what's called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. It wasn't completely a peace, the world was at war, but relative to what was before, it, it is a relative peace. Um, what's interesting, and I, this, is, this is pointing to what I was saying earlier, is that the assumption on Rome's part is if they only do certain things, if they make these contracts and make these treaties, the world will be at peace. What we see is even though people enter into, that, into those difficulties with those expectations, they're never realized, not, or at least not completely. The play begins with the Civil War just having been put to rest. Yeah? If you know anything about the history, you know that Julius Caesar um, was declared an emperor, and Brutus and Cassius, um, who represented the Republic, were so concerned at the totalitarian powers that Caesar would have that they executed. That's the play Julius Caesar. They kill him. Anthony and Caesar, Octavia here, gather forces and defeat them. So a civil war is just put down just before the play opens. We get echoes of it because we learn that Pompey is raising armies. He's already taking over Sicily and he poses a threat to Caesar. 
<clears throat> Anthony leaves Cleopatra to go back to Rome because he feels he's been derelict in his duty. That Caesar's going to be unhappy with him because Pompey's gaining this power. So even though a civil war is put to rest, another one's on the horizon. Okay? And here's what we learned during the play, besides the, the Pompey threat. Um, Fulvia warred against Lucius, who is Antony's brother. Fulvia's Antony's wife. They go to war. Then they put their war to rest and join forces against Caesar. These all had to do with legislative differences. It's like looking at the Democrats and Republicans today about feeding the poor and you know, what to do with things. They go to war against Caesar. Labinius was sent to Parthia to get aid against Antony. Pompey's gaining power, I said that. Um, in the middle of the play, we know that tensions are growing between Antony and Cleopatra. Um, one of Caesar's, um, or sorry, between Caesar and Anthony, one of Anthony's generals suggests that um, Anthony marry Octavia, Caesar's wife, to patch things up. Remember, Rome tends to look down on women because they don't have the physical strength. They're not warriors, and, and Rome depends on the strength of men for their conquest. So Rome looks down on women. They, they, they make the offer that Anthony marry Octavia to patch up these differences. Um, um, but here are, here are some of the um, <coughs> battles that are, that are taking place. Oops. Act three. You don't just you can just note it here, but Act three, scene one. Ventidius now now darting Parthia art mote struck, and now please fortune does of Marcus Crassius' death make me revenger. Bear the king's son's body before our army. Thy Porcorus Orodes pays this for Marcus Crassius. The Parthians took Crassius' life, and Rome is now exacting vengeance. So this was before the play opens. It was part of the civil wars involving um, Julius Caesar and, and Brutus and Cassia. The past keeps <coughs> inserting itself. It, it just keeps haunting the play. Just when they think they've answered something, taken vengeance, or brought to justice some wrong in the past, the past reasserts itself, and the wounds keep coming. It's a little bit today like thinking, whatever the disorders are in our life, in our marriages, in our family, that once a disorder is answered, it's over completely. It's done. Um, um, when we know that it's not, it's not. We are not in heaven, as much as sometimes we'd like to think that we are. The wounds are always going to be there, whatever form. And it may, even, the, even if we resolve one problem, we know there are others elsewhere. That, that we're living, we live in a fallen world, so we're always susceptible to something. So one of the great ironies of the action in Antony and Cleopatra is Rome continues to pursue this peace, um, and yet the, we see that it, it, it'll, it doesn't hold, that old wounds keep surfacing that require new actions. So as much as they would like to bring in a universal peace that would last, they can't. Egypt is far more given to pleasuring the body. Rome's attitude towards the body is it's at risk. Soldiers are going to die. So the body's always at risk. 
In Egypt, Antony and Cleopatra do almost nothing but make love. So Rome puts the body at risk. Egypt pleasures the body. Okay? They drink and have sex and are glad. When Anthony goes back to Rome to settle things with Caesar, uh, Caesar, Enobarba says it won't last. He will never lose that woman. He'll always go back to Cleopatra. So there are these tensions between body and soul and between two cities who seem to embody um, those two values, okay? Um, if we look at the rising action of the play, the rising action is like this. Caesar is never defeated. Um, when Antony leaves Cleopatra and goes to Rome to settle things, they make a truce. And it looks like the three triumvirs will be at rest. The tensions are gone. Caesar, Lepidus, and Antony. Those are the three leaders, okay? When they meet with Pompey, they meet with the idea of trying to avoid a war. And they do. They make a truce that Pompey will get certain lands. He'll get Sicily and some other things. He'll have to rid the, the sea of things. Turn to Act 2, Scene 7. This is when all the world leaves. This is, I really, I give this some thought. This is a little bit like Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill meeting. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding at all. I'm not kidding at all. It's like three world leaders, and think about the importance of those meetings that they had for the outcome of the Second World War. Here are the, the triumvirs and Pompey meeting to try to avoid a war with Pompey because Pompey's gaining power. Minas, who is... Um, Pompey's general comes to him, this act two, scene seven, about line 60. He goes to him and says secretly, <laughs> the, when the leaders are um, attending to themselves, Mina says, would thou be lord of the world? What sayest thou? Would thou be lord of the whole world? That's twice. You can hear the impatience. Um, and then he says, give me the word and I'll kill Three men. What would Machiavelli's answer to this have been? Not a doubt. Okay. Pompey says, these are Pompey. Pompey himself says, it would, been, it would have been better if thou had not told me and just done it. That's how much Pompey wants it to be done. But he doesn't do it. And the serious question, should he have done it? And if it did, would it have put to rest of wars? I hope that's clear by now. It wouldn't. I mean, whatever illusions people have about um, he said, it would have been better if you'd done it, but now that you've told me as a man of honor, you can't. So that chance is lost. One of the interesting ironies in this moment is Caesar, who thinks he can control fortune, doesn't even realize it, but he was spared by an act of fortune over which he had no control, didn't even see. So ironies are abounding. Okay? At this point, um, Pompey refuses Minas' suggestion. But notice what happens afterwards, line 80. For this I'll never follow thy palled fortunes more, who seeks and will not take, when once tis offered shall never find it more. He's going to seek an occasion to leave Pompey. This is the first withdrawal of a number. I'll go into them in just a second and pull them together. Now what's at issue here? Minas is one of Pompey's greatest generals. And because Pompey didn't take Minas' advice, Minas is going to leave him. 
But try to put this in contemporary terms for a second, you guys, if you could, okay? Say you're two businesses, two major businesses in America, and um, you're the leader in one of them, and one of your subordinate comes to you and says, here's a way to defeat our rival. And the guy doesn't take it, and the rival's gaining power. Is it, is it clear to everybody that what that subordinate faces is either remaining with this company while it's going down, or switch, right. Does everybody see how, rel how pertinent, how, how much this speaks to what goes on forever? So the issue facing him is the, the way of the world, i.e. Caesar's way, because Caesar is always successful. Nobody abandons, well, no, yeah, nobody, nobody abandons him because he's always successful. So how much, how much do people do what they do in our world because it promises success? Now remember what Thomas's four goods are in the world that men have to be careful of. Power, wealth, fame or image, or, you know, and pleasure. And, and watch their presence work out here. Those four goods. Power, wealth, image, reputation, and pleasure. That those are all natural goods. This is Boethius, by the way. This is Boethius' argument. What's wrong with those goods? They're temporary. They're temporary. They're all perishable. That was Boethius' argument, remember? That's why I said to Boethius, stop whining. Stop your, you know, the problem with you is you're, you've lost your way and, you know, they're perishable. When, when man begins to define his life by them, instead of God, he's made himself Cleopatra, Caesar's fortune slave. I mean, you make yourself a slave. Our attachments to those things keep us from freedom, from being free. So the great tension here has to do with the way of the world, which is represented in Caesar. Power, success, prudence, doing the right thing is always. Anthony um, challenges him to one-on-one -on -one combat because he knows Anthony is the greatest soldier in the world. Nobody, nobody doubts that. Nobody, even Caesar. When Anthony challenges him to hand-to-hand -hand combat to, to spare his men, what's Caesar's response? No. Where do they fight? At sea, where Caesar has his strength. It was one of the most stupid things Anthony did. So we're made aware of the way of the world, image and Caesar, success, power, image. Other people will approve of you. Um, they'll look at you in a better way. All of those things appeal to the pride, and they blind men. They keep men from deeper spiritual truths. Okay? And just before we go ahead, I want you to recall, remember when we looked at the beginning last time, when Charmian asked the soothsayer, to tell her fortune. Do you all remember that? Did I go over that? Mm -hmm. Did I? I mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's Act 1, Scene 3. You don't need to. He, he says to Charmian, um, um, you shall be yet fairer than you are. She has no idea what these means. If you've read the play, they, they, they are painfully revealing, just painfully revealing. You shall be yet fairer than you are. Um, she has no clue that she will never be more beautiful than she is when she takes her life. Um, you shall be more beloving than beloved. 
she will love somebody more than she cares about being loved. There's something selfish in Charmian, in all of the women here. At the end, something else is going to happen. You shall outlive the lady whom you serve. She serves Cleopatra. Finally, you have seen and proved a fairer former fortune than that which is to approach. The best of your years are behind you. You're going to lose everything. Now, before we go any farther, set all that I've been saying, all that I've been describing, under the way of the world against the cross. You know that Christ went to a cross. He, Paul's reading, he emptied himself of, he gave up everything. He came to this world, in this world he was an exile. This was not his home. He entered this world as an exile. He said the man of, the son of man has no place to lay his head. This is not his home. His home was with the father. So he came here in poverty. The God that had everything became impoverished when he emptied his, when he gave up his power. The one who was the creator of all became a creature. The God who was infinite became finite. So all these paradoxes line up with what Christ did when he entered. And then he took all of it as a human being and went to a cross and was humiliated, absolutely humiliated. The Jews were in lots of ways outraged because they thought if the Messiah came, if he was, in fact, this is the reason they believed he was not one of the reasons they believed he wasn't the Messiah. When the Messiah came, he would come in glory and power and he would put to rout this Roman occupation army. Instead, he goes to a cross and he's humiliated. So any, any Jew who saw himself in worldly terms would have wanted to have nothing to do with Christ. It was the Christians who saw that it was only by sharing in those humiliations that they would learn how to love. So Caesar's in the world. He's an image of success and power, <coughs> reputation. The one seems to me the one area where he lacks anything is pleasure, and that's all on the side of Anthony and Cleopatra. But that's the tension in the story, okay? Um, Rome is a place of strategies, of, of planning solutions. Um, Egypt is a place, place of the body and pleasure. And interesting, with a soothsayer, it's a place of something prophetic. It can see, actually see into the future. And, and the soothsayer says, I, it, it makes it clear that he has this power on condition. He makes it clear that he can see, but has no power to affect what he sees. Caesar is the opposite. He can see nothing, but he makes plans to affect them and puts the power in place to do it. So it's just another antithesis. Okay? Is everybody? Okay. I want to just... Um, I want to look at the play and I want to try to um, very quickly go over some passages to ask these questions that I've been putting off. Any questions before we go there? It's so good to see you and it's so good. <laughs> She's always smiling, but I always have a sense that behind her smile is. What the hell is she doing now? <laughs> <laughs> Off having grandbabies. <laughs> okay, turn to the beginning. Let's, I'm going to turn to the very beginning. <clears throat> Philo, which means love, 
got it. <laughs> oh, God. Act one? Yep. Yeah, very beginning. Talks about Anthony and is, expresses his concern because Anthony right now is a divided man. He's, he's caught between two worlds, Rome and Egypt. So, and remember, I've said this before, opening lines in Shakespeare give away the play. Always. Opening line, opening scenes, forever. It's, it's like, it's his way of showing, here's the whole. Now you have to work through the parts to see the implications of it. They're much greater than you, than you realize. At that moment, Cleopatra and Anthony make their stage entrance. And I've said this before. In a drama, everything speaks. The music, the, the gestures, if you watch the play, you know from watching the play, you'll get a lot more meaning out of it because you'll see the characters make expressions and I mean, give inflections to their words. But stage directions speak too. Remember when Portia returned home? And, um, God, oh God, when Portia returned to Belmont, Lorenzo and Jessica were talking, and, and, and Lorenzo was talking about the music of the spheres. And right at that moment, it says, Hark the music, Portia enters. And I remember underscoring that, which goes, why, my way of asking you to pay attention because everything speaks. In our world, that's, you know, pe people are blind, but everything speaks. So when she walks in, I think we're meant to see that this is poetry itself. This is the word, the harmony, the justice, the order, everything she brings to the courtroom. So here, again, we've got a stage entrance. Anthony and Cleopatra walk on stage, and Cleopatra's first words are, if it be love indeed, tell me how much. Anthony, there's beggary in the love that can... It'll be a poverty if I try to express my love for you. I won't be able to do it. I'll set a bourne, how far to be loved. She'll set a limit. Then must thou needs find out new heaven, new earth. You know that those are taken from Revelation. New heaven, new earth, right? And my question last week was, what was just said before the two made their stage entrance? If Cleopatra said, if it be love indeed, tell me how much, what had to have been said for her to say that? Is that clear? I love you, yeah. I love you too. <laughs> I do. Um, obviously, he just said, Dur, I love you. We don't hear it. Why not? That's at the first end. At the other end, if I'm going to be able to express this love for you, it will take a new heaven and a new earth. We don't see it. There are two apophatic moments, bookends, that close that opening introduction. You know? We know by what's absent. He just said, I love you. We don't hear it. So it's a knowledge by absence. It's not there. We know it was there, right? So Shakespeare is asking us to see in absences what can't be seen. It's another way of knowing. I hope everybody's clear in that. It opens that way and it closes. It'll take a new heaven and a new earth. Is it there? No. Christ has not entered the world yet. It's as if Shakespeare's saying, that's the real nature. They don't quite see it. So when he says, I love you, it's not going to mean what it will mean when Christ comes. But I, I want to just put it that way, but in, in this context, what was God doing before Christ came? Does it mean he wasn't active? That he wasn't trying to help people love the way they would if they were answering Christ after he comes? What was God doing? What's going on in this play? So the opening mm -hmm. makes us aware 
that we've got to learn to see by what's not there. And I'm trusting that everybody's going to feel the full force of the irony of that. Westerners, Westerners want to fill up space. I think I've said this. They, it, I mean, very often you go into homes and you, it's like somebody's afraid to have any empty space. If you go into an Eastern home, lots of space, typically. They're not afraid that, that this world is illusory to the Eastern mind. The real world is through the absent, through. So that's just a fundamental difference between East and West. It, it's a simplification, but there's a lot of truth to it. Bob? Yeah? Would you say this, um, let me see, line 14, would you? Anthony, just say it a different way. There's beggary in the love that can be reckoned. He's just saying line, that. Yeah, 14. That if if I if I could say if if I said I loved you or tried to tell you how much there'd be a poverty to it because it would never could never fully express what I feel for you. It's a, it's close to what Tom was saying earlier when we struggle to find the words for something and and realize that yeah they are inadequate that that okay. there are times when you want to say to the person you love I love you and you know that. They can't fully convey the depths of what you feel. Remember, remember Othello's um, I am what of speech, I am root of speech. We talked about that, that how could he have expressed what he did if he was inarticulate and uneducated? Because his lines are among the most beautiful in that that poetry is helping us to feel things, see and feel things we often feel but can't find words for. And she says, I'll set a born. She'll set, I'll, she'll set the limit. She'll set, I'm going to, you know, I'll set. And he, he said, if you're going to do that, then it'll take a new heaven and a new earth. She, she's, she's, she's a woman. She's a queen. She's being wooed. She's already had an affair with Anthony. She's had, a, or I mean with Caesar. She's had an affair with Pompey. She had a child by Caesar, Caesarian. Um, she knows about political machinations. This guy's... You could say he's coming on to her. I mean, you, I'm, he's just said, I love you. She's just being very cautious and say, tell me how much. You know, I hope everybody's seen, I mean, at one, at one level, you can read it cynically. Mm-hmm. At another level, it can open on mysteries. What is Shakespeare doing? Let's go on, because remember the danger is if we look at parts and not see the whole, we would just miss it all. Let's... Um, Quickly on Act 2, Scene 2, about line 320. This is when Enobarbus is describing Cleopatra to the soldiers. And um, I've already read it. So he describes the, the barge and how erotic every, the water, the barge, the Act air. Two, scene two. Act 2, Scene 2, about line 200. For her own person, it beggared all description. She did lie in her pavilion, cloth of gold, of tissue. Um, on each side her stood pretty dimpled boys like smiling cupids which diverse colored fans whose wind did seem to glow the delicate cheeps which they did cool and what they di- undid did. The, the boys are fanning the people to cool them off and as they do it it's, it's creating a more amorous feeling. It's actually awakening Eros because everything about the scene with, with her around it's like she exudes the, if you, those of you did Faulkner, remember the Hamlet, Eula, those descriptions of Eula? It, it so reminds me of her. She just exudes. Where you can't see her without 
feeling that the world around her becomes aroused. Oh, rare for Anthony. Her gentle women like the Nereids, so many mermaids, tender her in the eyes and made their bends adorings. At the helm, I, I, I don't, the city cast her people out upon her and Anthony enthroned it in the marketplace to sit alone, whistling to the air which but for vacancy had gone to gaze on Cleopatra too and made a gap in nature. There it is again, those gaps, those absences um, in connection with love. Ian Bars goes on, he described her, um, she made great Caesar lay his sword to bed, he plowed her and she cropped. She had a child by Caesar. I saw her once hop 40 paces through the public street and having lost her breath, she spoke and panted that she did make defect perfection and breathless power breathe forth. Power breath forth, breathe forth. Um, <coughs> in something negative in her, the, the lack of air, she turns it into something positive. Now Anthony must leave her utterly, never he will not, age cannot wither her, nor custom stale her infinite variety. Other women cloy the appetites they feed, but she makes hungry where most she satisfies. For vilest things become themselves in her, that the holy priest bless her when she's riggish. There's something extraordinary in her. The moral standards of the time, this is really like Faulkner with, um, with um, Eula. The moral standards? are inadequate to deal with what we're dealing with. What he's showing is something transcendent, even in her, whatever we want to lack of morality. Um, going over to the end, um, Anthony and Octavia go to Athens, and everything seems patched up, but Anthony gets news that Caesar and Lepidus went to war against Pompey, Remember, a treaty had just been made, and, and peace was restored. Next thing we know, Anthony or Caesar and Lepidus are going to war with, against Pompey. They defeat Pompey, and Caesar trumps up these charges against Lepidus, defeats him, and Caesar is now ruler of the world. So Anthony's left with this condition. What's he going to do? Caesar's clearly... It seems like he violated the treaty. Something happened. Um, but once again, the, 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 the treaties, the contracts were futile, pointless. Anthony sends Octavia home. When Caesar receives her, he talks about what happens in terms of a loss. Um, I don't want to read it, but it's another one of those moments of gaps and emptiness. Um, Caesar and Anthony are going to go to war. Um, Caesar, Anthony presents a, um, a challenge. Caesar <coughs> refuses it, and he decides to go to war at sea, even though all of his men try to persuade him not to, because he, he's, he's this great land general. He's he, simply the greatest soldier in the world, really, truly. And he doesn't. Against their better advice, he, um, he goes to war uh, uh, as, if, as if it will make him more of a hero. I think his vanity is that much in it. Um, Caesar defeats him. Um, when he decides to go to war, Enobarbus begins a serious question Anthony's soldier's heart. He believes he's losing his heart, the soldier in him, and he begins to seek for a way to leave him. 
Um, on in, in Act Three, Scene Ten, um, Cleopatra goes into the war with Antony, and it, I hold on to this because I think it's important. She describes herself as a man. Now, this is one of the most sexually feminine women in all of history. She describes herself as a man. Enobarbus should have no fears about her going into the battle. She will hold up her end. You know what happens when they go into battle. She flees. And um, Anthony's men are um, ashamed and I think in some sense feel betrayed. Scara says, Act 3, Scene 10, she once being loof, the noble rune of her magic, Anthony claps on his sea wings and like a doting mallard, leaving the fight in height, flies after her. I never saw an action of such shame, experience, manhood, honor, never before did violate itself. Everything that made Anthony a man, gone. Now think about the, you know, losing a job is almost less, even, even though it's a horrible experience. I mean, anybody who loses a job is facing a, but you know that so often when a person loses his work, who is he? If he's defined himself that way, it, it can be awful. Um, they talk about the shame of it, and Canidius, one of Anthony's generals, says, To Caesar will I rent, this is about 35, To Caesar will I render my legions and my horse six kings already show me the way of yielding. Anthony's lost himself. What's he going to do? Go to where the power, the successes. Because Anthony has lost himself as a general. Act 3, scene 11. Anthony, hark the land bids me, tread upon it no more. He, where, he's lost. If you can't stand on the earth, where are you? Where, you can't. I mean, in a sense, he's nobody. The earth won't hold him. It is a shame to bear me. Friends, come hither. I am, I am so lated in the world that I have lost my way forever. I have a ship laden with gold. Take it, divide it, fly, and make your peace with Caesar. I have fled myself and have instructed cowards to run and show. So, up to this point, when the play opens, Anthony's divided between Rome and Egypt. We know that. But when he goes to Rome, it's the Roman in him saying, I've got to go take care of business. To whatever. Here, he's reached a point where he said, I'm nobody. The land has no place for me. I don't even know myself. Go. And he says to men, they're not going to leave him. The good men are going to stay. But Anthony has lost himself. Um, he is furious at Cleopatra about line 50. I have offended reputation, most noble swerving, arrow, sir, the queen. Well, whither hast thou led me, Egypt? See how I convey my shame out of thine eyes by looking back what I have left behind, destroyed in dishonor. Oh, my Lord, forgive my fearful sails. I little thought you would have followed. Do we believe her? I don't know. Egypt, thou knewest too well, my heart was to the rudder tied by the strings, and thou shouldest tow me after, O oh, my spirit, thy full supremacy, thy newest, and that thy beck might from thy bidding of the gods command me, O oh, my pardon. Can anybody hear Cleopatra saying pardon to anybody up to this moment in her life? Now I must to the young man, said humble treaties, and palter to the shifts of lowness, who with a half bulk of the world played as I played. He owned half the world with Caesar. Now he's got to send a messenger to Caesar to play up to him. So this is the most degrading moment in his life. He's got to play a, a servant to Caesar. They send off um, 
the, the servant, Caesar wants to make terms, and the way that he does it is to tell Cleopatra that he'll make terms with her to give her everything she wants because she, he, he, he's trusting that as a woman, she's not going to want to go into battle. She, she's used to pleasures that he will satisfy her wants on the condition that she betray Cleve Anthony. Um, Act 3, scene 13, Enobarbus, yes, like enough, high-battled Caesar will unstate his happiness and be staged to the show against a sworder. I see men's judgments are a parcel of their fortunes, and things outward do draw the inward quality after them to suffer all alike. That he should dream, knowing all measures, the full Caesar will answer his empty... There it is. It, it's, an, it's a sense as if Caesar himself, by giving Anthony anything, could make up what Anthony's lost. Is everybody clear? Can that be made up? It, it cannot be made up right now. He's lost everything that he... Um, um, the, the Caesar sends Thidius back with these terms... Anthony whips him. So Anthony's just started to accommodate, be, or show a willingness to accommodate to Caesar, and then he whips him on Act 3, scene 13, line 140. Um, Get thee back to Caesar, tell him thy entertainment. Look thou, say, he makest me angry with him, for he seems proud and disdainful, harping on what I am, not what he knew I was. He makes me angry. He's going to whip him. Cleopatra, go down a few lines. Have you done yet? Alack, our tearing moon is now eclipsed, and it portends alone the fall of Anthony. There it is, new eclipsed, gone. I must stay his time to flatter Caesar. Would you mingle eyes with one that tries his points? He's still accusing her, and she says, Do you not know me yet? Cold-hearted towards me, ah, dear, if it be so from my cold heart, that is, if what you're saying is true, death take me. If it be so, from my cold heart, let heaven engender hail and poison it in the source, and the first stone drop in my neck as it determines so dissolve my life. If all of this is true, let my life be gone. The next Caesarian smite. This is the son that they had, she had with Caesar. The next Caesarian smite, till by degrees the memory of my womb, together with my brave Egyptians all, by the descanding of this pelleted storm, lie graveless, till the flies and gnats of Nile have buried them for prey. She's been identified with her regime, with Egypt. She's the queen of it. She can have her way. She's saying now, if this be true, wipe away my lineage. She's wanted Caesar to be the heir to the throne. And right now she's saying, take him, drop my womb, have no more children. So both of them who were completely identified with their culture, their regime, have now reached a point where some kind of detachment is taking place. Um, do they know where they are? Do they know this place? Is it familiar? Do they have their bearings there? Um, Cleopatra, Anthony says, I'm satisfied, I will fight. Now remember, Enobarbus was angry at, at Anthony because he didn't fight. He made terms with Caesar. Enobarbus is a soldier. He's been loyal to Anthony all of his life. Here, Anthony says, I'll fight. Cleopatra says, that's my brave lord. That's about 180. I will be treble sinewed, hearted, breathe, and fight maliciously for when my hours 
were nice and lucky. Men did ransom lives of me for jest, but now I'll set my teeth and send to darkness all that stopped me. Come, let's have one other gaudy night. Call to me all my said captains, fill out, fill their bulls once more. Let's mock the bit. He's going to fight. All the, all the loyal soldiers are glad to hear him. <coughs> this is the soldier they've known. He's going back to war. And for this night, they're going to feast and they will make love for sure. Enobarbus, about line 190. Now, he is, now he'll outstare the lightning. To be furious is to be frighted out of fear. And in that mood, the dove will peck the estridge. And I see still a diminution in our captain's brain restores his heart. When valor preys on reason, and we have to hear Caesar and what he does with reason, his cunning, his prudence. When, um, when valor preys on reason, it eats the sword it fights with. I will seek some way to leave him. So that night they make love. Antony, Act 4, Scene 2, is speaking to his men. It, it's, it's, it's probably the most tender scene in the play. He has probably had too much to drink. He's thanking the men for their service, about line 10. Give me thy hand, thou hast been rightly honest, so hast thou, and thou, and thou, and thou. He goes on. And thou art honest too. I wish I could be made so many men, and all of you clap up together in an Anthony, that I might do you service as good as you have done. He wishes he could be all of them so he could return the service. They've. So he's at a point of weeping. Cleopatra, what does he mean, Enobarbus, to make his followers weep? He says, tend me tonight. Perchance tomorrow you'll serve another master. I look on you as one that takes his leave. Mine honest friends, I turn you not away, but like a master married to your good service, stay till death. Tend me tonight's two hours. I ask no more, and the gods yield you for it. He's given himself over to his men. He, he's overcome with gratitude for the way that they have given their lives. Enobarba says, what man you, sir, to give them this discomfort? Look, they weep, and I am ass and onionite for shame, transform us not to women. Now, Cleopatra has called herself a man. He's being critical of Anthony right now because he's turning them into women. And remember the attitude at the beginning. Romans looked down on women. The Egyptians looked down on men. Remember, um, Charmian said, um, a man couldn't be a man unless he was uh, cuckolded but all the women should cuckold the men in Egypt. They look down on men. So you've got these polarities between the sexes, and here something strange has happened. Cleopatra tried to take over the role of a man. Here, you know, Barbas is concerned because this tenderness is so deep, he's not used to seeing it in the men. Now, right at this point, what happens? Act 4, scene 3. The soldiers are on guard. It's the night before the next battle. They're on guard and um, about line 10 or so. Tis a brave army and full of purpose. And right at that moment, oboes can be heard under the stage. So it's got to be a haunting, quiet, um, auspicious. There's something like an omen in the air. It's a hard to find a word. It's We're getting guards on duty, and so it doesn't seem to be an action, and yet we're taken to these guards. They hear oboes under the stage. Music is coming. So is everybody following? We're entering another space because there's no music around. Nobody's 
Are you all following? We're entering something. It has an omen quality to it. Tis a brave army and full of purpose. Music of the oboes. Sage of peace. What noise? List. Shh, shh. Hark. Music in the air, under the earth. It signs well, does it not? No. Peace, I say. What should this mean? Tis the god Hercules whom Anthony loved now leaves him. Now, hold on to all these departures. Minas left. Remember? Um, Canidius left Anthony. Enobarbus is seeking to leave and will now. The god Hercules is leaving. All these withdrawals are taking place. I want to look at Enobarbus you know, because it's just crushing. Right? All these withdrawals are taking place and the god Hercules is leaving. So the, the question is, is that a sign of, of death, of, of, of an absentee? If I could, of an absentee taking place, a condition of absence is, I can't find the words there. Um, or is it a withdrawal in order to make clear something else either there or coming? Just a question, okay? But all of these withdrawals. Now here's what happens. In the next day, when Anthony goes into battle, um, he asks for Enobarbus, and the soldier tells him he's gone. Now you can imagine the effect of this on Anthony, because this n nobody's been more faithful than Enobarbus to Anthony up until this time. Go to go to Act Four, Scene Five. Um, Anthony's crushed by the news, and then he says to the soldier about line ten, Act Four, Scene Five. Go Eros, and notice it's Eros. You all know what Eros means, right? Go arrow, send his treasure after it, do it, detain, no jot, I charge thee, write to him, I will subscribe, gentle adieus and greetings, say that I wish he never find more cause to change a master, oh my fortunes have corrupted honest men. He takes it on himself, this is like Helena taking on Bertram, so he takes it on himself, it says send all this. Now right at this moment Caesar um, is losing the second battle, Caesar says, Act 5, Act 4, Scene 6, the time of universal peace is near. Prove this a prosperous day. The three-nook world shall bear the olive away. Anthony's going to win this battle. And remember, Enobarbus has now switched side because Anthony was doing anything stupid. And he's winning now. And, and Enobarbus is with Caesar. Act 4, Scene 6, line 30. He receives all of his things. God, it's a hard cutting. He receives all of these things from his master, from Anthony. And then he says, I am, I am alone, the villain of the earth, and I feel I am so most. O Anthony, thou mine of bounty, how wouldst thou have paid my better service when my turpitude thou dost so crown <coughs> Anthony gives a gift to him just when he's betrayed him. And Anthony, you know, Barbaros is the kind of soldier whose loyalty was unquestionable. He would have gone down with his commander in defeat, except for what Anthony's doing, and he left him. Um, How wouldst thou have paid my better service when my turpitude thou dost thou dost so crown with gold? This blows my heart. If swift thought break it not, a swifter mean shall outstrike outstrike thought. But though will do it, but thought will do it. I feel. I fight against thee, no I will not seek, I will go seek some ditch 
wherein to die. The foulest best fits my latter part of life. He will not fight against Anthony. Go on over, Act 4, Scene 9. Um, so Enobarbus, this great soldier, seeks out a ditch. Line 12. O sovereign mistress of true melancholy, the poisonous damp of night to sponge upon me, that life of very rebel to my will may hang no longer on me. Throw my heart against the flint and hardness of my fault, which being dried with grief will break to powder and finish all foul thoughts. O Anthony, nobler than my revolt is infamous. Forgive me in thy own particular, but let the world rank me in register a master lever and a fugitive. Oh, Anthony, oh, Anthony. He dies. Nobody kills him. He dies from a broken heart, from a sense of shame. Um, I'm, I want to just quickly, I want to get to two passages then, and then ask my questions of you. You know that Anthony um, is defeated in the next battle, and once again, Cleopatra runs and he follows her. This is Act 4, Scene 12, um, around, about line 10, all is lost, the foul, this foul Egyptian hath betrayed me, my fleet hath yielded to the foe, and yonder they cast their caps up and carouse together like friends long lost. Triple turned whore, tis thou hast sold me to this novice, and my heart, my heart makes only wars on thee. He, he wants to kill her, he's so outraged at what she's just done. On Act 4, scene 14, he asks Eros, which means love, to kill him, because you know that that's the Roman thing to do. Before he would suffer dishonor at being taken by Caesar, he would take his own life. And the understanding between a commander and his soldier is that the soldier do that. So Eros knows that that was something he might face in his life. I don't think he ever expected it to happen, but now it is happening. Um, line 10. My good knave Eros, now thy captain is such a body. Here I am, Anthony, yet cannot hold this visible shape. God, who is he? He isn't the man he was. My knave, I made these wars for Egypt. And the queen whose heart I thought I had, she had mine, which whilst it was mine, had annexed unto it a million more now lost. She, Eros, has packed cards with Caesar and fought. So he's saying, take my life, about line 50, since Cleopatra, now he gets the news that she is dead and he's so ashamed at the thought that she would die before him. Um, line 50, since Cleopatra died, I have lived in such dishonor that the gods detest my baseness. I, that which my sword quartered the world and o'er green Neptune's back, the ships, the oceans, with ships made cities, condemn myself to lack the courage of a woman less noble mind than she which by her death our Caesar tells I am conqueror of myself. She didn't let Caesar take her. Thou art sworn, Eros, that when the um, exigent should come, which now is come indeed, when I should see behind me the inevitable prosecution of disgrace and horror, that on thy, my command thou wouldst kill me. Do it, the time is come, thou strikest not me, to Caesar thou defeatest. They're defeating Caesar. Eros, which means love, he has loved this commander his whole life. He's supposed to take his life. He so loves him that the thought of seeing his commander die makes him turn the sword on himself and he takes his life. Um, Eros, my sword is drawn. 
Then let it do at once the thing why thou hast drawn it, my dearest master, my captain, and my emperor, let me say, before I strike this bloody stroke, farewell to said man. Anthony's going, get on with it. And farewell, farewell, great chief, shall I strike now, now arrows. Why there then, thus I do escape the sorrow of Anthony's death. He loves him so much that he doesn't want to see him dead. He kills himself. Thrice nobler than myself, thou teachest me, O valiant Eros, what I should and thou couldst not. My queen and Eros have by their brave instruction got upon me a nobleness and record, but I will be a bridegroom in my death and run into it. He tries to kill himself. This is almost funny. He's the most capable soldier in the world, and he messes it up. He, it's not a fatal blow, and he's left wounded. Cleopatra gets the news, and she asks that he be taken up to her in the tower, Act 4, Scene 15, about line 20, I am dying, Egypt dying, only I hear importune death a while until, until of many thousand kisses, the poor last I lay upon that. Um, she wants him to be quiet um, because she knows he's dying. I, I didn't really, I should read these, um, um, but we don't have time. I, I'm going to pass over a lot of this. She says about 60, noblest of men would die. Hast thou no care of me? Shall I abide in this dull world? In thy absence is no... Now remember, her greatest pleasure was in Anthony, in the world. He's gone. Um, so she has, according to her words here, she has no reason to live. She says, oh, see my women, the crown of the earth doth melt, my lord. Oh, withered is the garland of the of the war, the soldier's pole is fallen. Young boys and girls are level now with men. There's no meaning in the world, there's no meaning in war. The world that she once valued because it gave her a pleasure, nothing. The odds is gone and there's nothing left remarkable beneath the um, visiting moon. Um, now I'm gonna, to get to the end, um, <clears throat> Caesar comes to her and does all he can to protect her because he knows if she's left alone, she'll take her life. He puts guards on, and one of the guards actually ends up taking a knife from her because she managed to get it and avoid um, um, losing her. On Act 5, Scene 2, um, she describes what will happen if she's allowed to be taken as a trophy through Rome, paraded, the way that um, Octavia and others will look at her. Dolabella comes in, uh, who is sympathetic with her. He's one of Caesar's soldiers. And in Act, or Act 5, Scene 2, about line 80, she talks about a dream she had of Antony. She's, and she speaks to Dolabella, and he says, I understand not, madam. Now, hold on before I go farther. If you look at the later tragedies, and I'm thinking particularly of Lear, I'm not assuming you guys have read it, but if at the end of Lear, Lear will, he will lose his daughter, and um, he'll go, look there, look there. And all of the people around say, leave him, because they assume he's mad. And either he's mad, or he's on the threshold of the next life, and he's seeing his daughter. Because those are, Shakespeare has those liminal, the, the passage that I just read you, that he seems to see through to something beyond. It's prophetic, because remember, prophecy very often means seeing at seeing something at a distance, up close, that we see dimensions of reality. Um, so in Lear, Lear goes, look there, look there, and they say, the doctor's there, and they say, quiet. 
<laughs> what did doctors know? Um, he's either mad or something else is going on. Here, she, she describes this dream. And the other thing I want you to hold on to, those of you who've done daunting know that at the Purgatorio, when Beatrice meets Dante, the griffin comes. There's that moment when Beatrice is looking at the griffin and Dante is looking into Beatrice's eyes and what he sees is the dual nature of Christ. I read that line. To me, it's one of the most powerful in all of literature next to this. And the, the, the vision is described this way. Dante looked at him and he said, the more I looked, the more I was satisfied and the more I was set on for hungering for more. How could it be otherwise? The, to, to, if God is infinite, whatever desires we have for him will be satisfied and set on infinitely. People think of heaven as static. It can't be with an infinite God. So it's a remarkable light, but that's with Christ. Now look at what Cleopatra, the way she describes Anthony. She asked Dolabella, he says, I understand not. I dreamt there was an Egyptian Anthony. Oh, such another sleep that I might see, but such another man. If it might please ye, he's, he's like saying, stop, you know, control yourself or um, calm down. If it might please ye, Cleopatra, his face was as the heavens, and therein stuck a sun and moon, which kept their course and lighted the little old earth. Most sovereign creature is going, calm down. His legs bestrewed the ocean, his reared arms crested the world, his voice was propertied as all the tuned spheres, music of the spheres, and that to friends. But when he meant to quail and shake the orb, he was as rattling thunder. For his bounty there was no winter in it, and autumn twas that grew the more by reaping. The more you harvested, the more it came up. His delights were dolphin-like, I showed his back above the, the element they lived in. In his livery walked crowns and crownettes, realms and islands were as plates dropped from his pocket. Cleopatra, he's still trying to cover. Think thou was or might be such a man as this I dreamt of, gentle madam? No, you lie upon the hearing of the gods. But if there be or not ever were such one, it's past the size of dreaming. Nature wants stuff to vie strange forms with fancy. Nature lacks to get there. Um, it needs something more. Yet to imagine an Anthony were nature's peace against fancy, condemning shadows quite. She just seen something that she's never experienced before, and it's so strange that Dolabella can't believe in it. Um, by the way, remember, according to St. Thomas, the human soul, the human person, is greater in worth and beauty and value than the entire physical universe. You know, the image of Mary in the, in the, um, the rosary in Revelations of this extraordinary beauty and you know, she's presented in um, relation to the universe. Here she sees Anthony in these mythic terms that his greatness has just transcended it. It's so extraordinary. Caesar will come to try to protect her. Um, he fails. Um, a clown comes in bringing asps and um, against all of Caesar's uh, precautions. Go to Act 5, Scene 2, about line 280. Um, he gives her the asps um, and Cleopatra, knowing now what's about to happen, 
she says to her handmaids, this is about line 280, give me my robe, put on my crown. Remember, she's, she's imperial. This is a queen. She's been queen of Egypt. But it's really clear in the last scenes that she has renounced everything having to do with Egypt and Rome. Give me my robe, put on my crown. I have immortal longings in me. Now no more the juice of Egypt grapes shall moist this lip. Yer, yer, good Iris, quick. Methinks I hear Anthony call. I see him rouse himself to praise my noble act. I hear him mock the luck of Caesar, which the gods give men to excuse their after wrath. Husband, I come. Now to that name my courage prove my title. I am fire and air. Remember, there's four elements. Fire, air, earth, and water. She doesn't identify with earth and water. She identifies with fire and air, the, the more ethereal, transcendent elements. I am fire and air. My other elements I give to baser life. So have you done? Come then and take the last warmth of my lips. Farewell, kind Charmian. Iris, long farewell. She kisses them, and Iris, at the kiss, dies. It's like a Enobarbus. She's not wounded. Just by that kiss, she's undone. She dies. Cleopatra, have I asked in my lips, does fall? If thou and nature can so gently part, the stroke of death is as a lover's pinch, which hurts and is desired. Dost thou lie still? If thus thou vanishest, thou tellest the world it's not worth leave-taking. If this love will do this much to you, why are we here? What, what worth does the world have? Charmian, dissolve, quick cloud and rain, that I may say the gods themselves do weep. It's overpowering to her. She's what Charmian is watching it happen. And remember the soothsayer's fortune. You will be fairer, you will be more loving, you know. Um, Cleopatra, this proves me base. If she first meet the curled Anthony, he'll make demand of her and spend that kiss, which is my heaven to have. Come, thou mortal wench. With thy sharp teeth is most intricate of, of life. At once unite, poor venomous fool, be angry and dispatch. O couldst thou speak, that I might hear thee call great Caesar, ask, unpolicied. She puts another asp on her arm and dies, and um, Charmian then takes an asp and puts it on her, and she dies. Caesar comes in and says, O noble weakness, if they had swallowed poison, it would appear by external swelling, but she... Um, but she looks like sleep as she would catch another Anthony in her strong toil of grace. She's at peace in her. Um, we'll go back to one last line, Act 5, Scene 2, about line 200, 210. She's talking with Dolabella, and she's about to describe her dream, but she's um, projecting forward and imagining what would happen if she didn't take her life if she allowed Caesar to take her. Um, she says, Now, Iris, what thinkest thou? Thou, an Egyptian puppet, shall be shown in Rome as well as I. What will happen to her and her maidservants? They'll be made trophies, puppets. To, that is to be used. Mm -hmm. Because is there anything going on in the world that doesn't use other people? Um, mechanic slaves with greasy aprons, rules and hammers shall uplift us to the view. They'll put up these stages. In their thick breaths, rank of gross diet, shall we be enclouded and forced to drink their vapor. The gods forbid. That is, they're going to be used as trophy. Because this is the great queen of Egypt and her handmaids. Nay, tis most certain, Iris, saucy lictors. Now, this is the phrase that I wanted you all to hear. 
Saucy lictors will catch at us like strumpets and scald rhymers, poets, ballad us out of tune. The quick comedians extemporarily will stage us and present our Alexandrian revels. Anthony shall be brought drunken forth, they'll present him as a drunkard. And I shall see some squeaking Cleopatra boy my greatness in the posture of a whore. Is that clear? The, so what the poets are going to do is boy her, make her into something less, because how will the Roman, how will the poets of the world, if they're Roman, do anything but, so they're going to take away everything she is. So, so here's the question. Anthony and Cleopatra, the plays about these two lovers. Both of them completely identify with their re regimes at the beginning of the play, Rome, Egypt. Both of them become divided early on, Anthony right from the beginning, Cleopatra in some way. Um, the wars begin and Cleopatra becomes involved in and because of everything that happens it just sets the two of them, I mean they fight bitterly with each other. And then we come to this point where Anthony thinks she's taken her life, he tries to take his and botches it learns that she's still alive and longs to see her. He's brought to her, they're re reunited for a moment, he dies. And then she's faced with the prospect of either being taken to Rome and put on display, used as a thing with her handmaids, or take her life, she does. Here's my question. Everybody's clear on the plot, right? Here's my question. When we talked about Othello, I raised this question guardedly how are we to look at Othello because he takes his life and to the conventional Catholic view of things or Christian or when, a, when somebody takes their life they're damned. The church doesn't look at things that way. Um, it's always more careful of circumstances and it's certainly more careful of suicide today because suicides are so, I mean the world is a mad place today. But the typical attitude is he's damned. Othello's damned, you, you know. Um, I looked at the play and I read lines where he recognizes his sin and he remember if you, he calls down devils to whip himself, he's so ashamed of what's happened. And um, I think you all know my position, but just to remind you, um, he has that, that recognition scene and then he has the scene where he says he took this turban by his neck and, you know, that he sees himself as punishing the bad in him. So some part of him is, at, exercising justice on another and he takes his life. And, um, so with the, that tragedy in mind, we've got another tragedy. It's one of the reasons I wanted to do this. How do we look at Anthony and Cleopatra's death? It, it, it's a, according to our, the church view, it's a suicide. Are they damned? Are they the same people they were at the beginning of the play? Have they changed in self-knowledge? In all that they've experienced with each other, are, the, are they the same people? And given the way that Shakespeare's presented it, bring me my robes and my crown, I'm fire and air, you know, that um, there, there's this longing to be with him. When, Rome, when a Roman takes his life, he does it to escape a shame. That's the, like the samurai. It's simply a question of honor. So for anybody to do that means they're still identified with the regime or they wouldn't do it. The honor code defines them in, in the samurai code, in the Roman code. So are they doing it in that spirit? Is this a purely Roman act? 
is, is there concern to be defined in state terms, Roman terms, or is it something else? How do we look at Anthony and Cleopatra at this, in this end? I can't remember how you put it, um, Jay, but you, how did you put it? You, 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 but you're aware um, that, that something exists that you think you've lost? I can't remember how you put it. And I don't remember we, either. Huh? I don't remember either. So. I think you put it that way, that some, something you that you, something exists that you think you've lost. Is this just a death where they simply take their lives and it's a damning act? Think about all the withdrawals, all the withdrawals, keep Othello in your mind, think about all the withdrawals, and the fact that these people are dying, not from you know, wounds from an action. Enobarbus goes to a ditch, and he says, I'm the most, the greatest villain of the earth. Um, Iris dies upon the kiss. He's kissed and dead. Are, are those actions that we are to understand in terms of death as those two cultures understand it? Or have we entered another space where the loss doesn't mean the same thing? It's not, certainly not heroic. You know, I mean, I mean, if. Uh, you know, the Roman ideals, you know, if there was, you know, like um, uh, Hercules is his guiding spirit, uh, and when he loses that guiding spirit, what he based his identity on, or his success and the respect of his men because of that spirit, when that goes, who is he? And he loses. I mean, it's like losing your, not quite your essence. You're losing something. Your identity. identity. Yeah, the question I've got, pretty serious, is <coughs> when Hercules, the god, disappears. That seems to be the lowest point, I think. And my question <coughs> is, is that making way for another god? I mean, here, go back to the opening oh, lines. Okay. Um, tell me what, how much. We're asked to know something by its absence. And then, new heaven and new earth. By its, we don't know it yet. Um, let me put it differently. Shakespeare's Catholic. Shakespeare's Catholic. The Romans are Roman. If the Romans had written this play according to the play, according to the play, because we're focused on the play, not a historian. If a historian had written it, how would they have presented Anthony and Cleopatra? If the Roman poets had presented it, how would they have presented Anthony and Cleopatra? Anthony is a drunk. Cleopatra is this whore, boy. I mean, they, 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 they would have been able to capture nothing about who they were, certainly in the depths in which we've experienced. So with all of these withdrawals, is Shakespeare showing us not just that there are these withdrawals, but something else is present that we can only know by its absence, and it's Christ. I mean, how do we look at the end? Is this a love? Because it's really interesting the way you put there's no way in which, having gone through what they've gone through, they can identify themselves as purely Roman and Egyptian anymore. They're in another space. Is it empty? Is there just nothing there? Or is there something to their love that the Romans don't understand that Shakespeare, as a poet, and a Catholic or Christian, should? Or is there something to be learned for what seem to be losses 
I, I loved what you did with it in the beginning, Jay, because you were describing all these scenes in which something lost was taken to be lost, thought to be lost when it wasn't. So we're left with these absences that are actually full, even if we don't see them. It's a different way of seeing. So, you know, here, I mean, let me put it a little bit differently. Here's the, here's Caesar's action. Here's, here's it's, it's a rising action, yes? Caesar never loses. He, he's in charge at the end. He wins. He defeats them. In fact, what's going to follow this? He will become Augustus. This brings, to, this brings to a close all the civil wars in Rome. That's how important it is. It brings to a close. He will be made Augustus and the Pax Romana follows. What follows that are the, the five great Roman emperors, Trajan and Hadrian, I can't remember. And after that, Rome goes to hell. But what comes just after this is Christ into the world. Here's, according to the world's terms, here's the rising action of Caesar. This is the way Anthony and Cle Cleopatra look to Caesar. He's successful, he's powerful, he's in control. The Romans will mock them. Anthony will be a drunkard, should be buoyed. Do we look at them here, or is there something transcendent in what they're doing that this world can't understand? Go ahead. Well, to me, the two suicides, Anthony's is complicated, or it's more multi-dimensional. He's got the loss of a love, he's got the, the honorable loss of battle. And hers, particularly when she realizes the humiliation she would undergo as a Roman captain, that's a more prideful, sense of suicide and pride we think of it's, it's as a sin. Hers is, is more straightforward, whereas his decision uh, has a number of dimensions to it. Yeah. So. The other thing I wanted to mention, I did it earlier, but it may have been a little premature, but remember when Christ went to the cross and, wait, let me, it's so clear that through a great part of this play, that both Anthony and Cleopatra are defined, bound by their regimes. It's their identities, the way they see themselves. Cleopatra's an Egyptian, Anthony's a Roman. Is there some point at which their love for each other becomes greater than their love of the regime? Today it would be a job, job career. Whether a person loves another person more than a career, a job, state, I mean, whatever worldly thing put there. Remember that when Christ went to the cross and he asked us to follow him, he said, pick up your own cross, follow me. He asked us to give up everything we had because believing that, that unless we did that, we wouldn't love the way he did. And we know that one of the conditions of that love is getting past humiliations. He was a God who was absolutely humiliated. He didn't, in fact, that was a part of his love, that he did not let that get in the way of. So how do we look at the love of Anthony and Cleopatra at the end? Is what they do a way of sparing themselves of humiliation and shame for both of them? Is, is there something transcendent in it? Um, Shakespeare's extraordinary, the way he handles these things. Um, he, 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 you know, he, he was true to Venice in Othello. He's true to Rome and Egypt here. How are we to, how are we to understand 
what's taking place here. Will the Romans understand, does Caesar understand it? Um, seems to me Eros, I, I would say Eros partly understood he wouldn't have taken his life. And Iris partly understood her, she wouldn't have died on the kiss. Charming either. I mean, they, they see, there's, or, you know, go, put, it, put the soothsayer thing in it. Soothsayer said, you'll be lovelier than you are now. Could either any either of those women, Charmaine or Iris, have or have foreseen who they become at the end? Is Cleopatra the same woman at the end that she was in the beginning? Their self-knowledge. What did they understand? Do they under? Do people understand the space that they're in? However, you know, it, it can't be just defined in terms of Egypt or Rome. Whatever this space is, do people in the world see it well? She started out as being so self-centered, and everything was about her. Sorry. She started out being so Cleopatra. Yes. Yeah. So self-centered, and everything was about her. Everything. She didn't really end up that way. So while I agree that that there was this humiliation that she really didn't want to face, I don't. I don't think that she did it. She didn't. She didn't die as a self-centered selfish thing. It wasn't, had, had she continued to be self-centered and selfish, she would have done something different. She would have. She's um, too cunning not to. I mean, she, she would have gone she on, is. she would have played, she would have played, she just is a very cunning. She would have played Caesar and. She wouldn't and have been a queen anymore, but she could have, I mean, I think you're right. She would have played things, got whatever she wanted, but yep. there's, yeah, but. But you know what? I also think that Caesar, even though he went on and he had all this, he lost too. He really did, because he lost. Um, he lost her. She basically said no. She defeats him. She that, does. Those are words, yeah. She absolutely does yeah. defeat him. Yeah. It's interesting, and what's in? I, I think I think Caesar's a remarkable man myself. I don't think he's the. I think Antony and Cleopatra are the, the ones that were meant to, hopefully, identify with feel because. They bear a suffering that takes them beyond the world as we know it, its right. values. But Caesar's words at the end, he should, he's, he, he's, to me, he's an extraordinary politician. He, he does what you would, I would wish more politicians would do in the political order. You know? But he says at the end... Kill their opponents? Huh? <laughs> what? Kill their opponents? No. No. no in terms... He says... Um, a oh, noble weakness, if they had swallowed poison, could appear, um, but she looks like sleep as she would catch another Anthony in her strong toil of grace. He sees, and he says, um, most probable that, that so she died, for her physician tells me she has purpose, pursued conclusions infinite, of easy ways to die. Take, take up her bed and bear her women from her monument. She shall be buried by her Anthony. No grave upon the earth shall clip it in so fair, appear so famous. High events as these strike those that make them. He's so aware of what fortune can do to people. And their story is no less in pity than his glory, which brought them to be lamented. Our army shall in solemn show attend this funeral, and then to Rome come to Labella see high order in this great solemnity. Say what you want about it. And I mean, I, 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 he, he doesn't have whatever they've been given, whatever we're going to... I mean, I, to me, it's as close to Christian love before Christ because they, they've left that space. 
but he, he's such a good man at the political level. You know, he's so competent and capable. He sees that there's something there, and Shakespeare has him want to honor it. Is this the real historical Caesar? I don't know, and I don't care. He's not a historian. He's, he's trying to show us something that's faithful to history so that we learn from it, and something historians wouldn't see. So we've had two tragedies now. Um, any more? We pick up Scarlet Letter. Okay. I hope you guys have enjoyed this, that it's been learning, because it just, you know, we took those plays, Christian plays, Merchant, All's Well, Othello. We're in a Christian world at the verge of modernity, or we're watching a Christian world fade. It's actually fading. You can see Shakespeare's aware. I hope that became clear in our work. Shakespeare was clear of what was happening. Um, <laughs> Shakespeare was clear in what was happening. Here he's going back to a, a period, historically true, just before Christianity comes. <laughs> and we're seeing him do something remarkable again. It's just, it's amazing to see what he saw, to, to what you know, he could see that lots of people wouldn't have seen. I thought what you did with those three figures was amazing. Lying luck. <laughs> no, it isn't. And all I can say to you in response, BS, Jay. Are we meeting next week? No. no. Oops.